Now, I imagine that many of you this Christmas season are celebrating um, some Christmas traditions. Maybe that's actually why you're here. You come, uh, you go to a Christmas Eve service uh, at this time of the year. But maybe you have some other traditions, like your favorite uh, Christmas movie or Christmas meal that you enjoy this time of year. Well, my family, the family I married into, Monica's family, they actually like to go see the Nutcracker at the the Boston Opera House. Uh, And so this week, I went and saw the Nutcracker on Tuesday evening. Now, for those of you that maybe aren't familiar with the Nutcracker, it was uh, it originally premiered in Russia in St. Petersburg in 1892. So it's a very long-running, successful ballet. And the Boston Ballets, their most recent recent version, actually premiered in 2012. So it's a kind of a revamp. It's a it's a new version of the Nutcracker. Now. Monica and her sister and her family actually uh, went to that every year growing up. Like, it's a, it's a long-standing tradition uh, in their family. And for many years, my wife uh, and her sister were actually in the Nutcracker in the Boston Ballet. They uh, went as kids, and they played the different parts. So I don't know if you've seen the Nutcracker, but there are tons and tons of different parts for people of all ages, really. Uh, so they played, uh, throughout the years, they played the doll. You know the doll from earlier on. Uh, they played the lambs that hop around. I don't think they were ever the black lamb. Uh, they played the attendant, uh, a cherub, uh, a tea, uh, an angel, and a reindeer. So a lot of different parts uh, in the Nutcracker. And uh, I think it's fair to say that they enjoy the Nutcracker, and there are about three different types of people that go and see the Nutcracker. There are, the first type of people are those that really, really enjoy the Nutcracker. These are the people that when there's that party scene, they are having a party too. Or the the Mouse King fight, oh man, don't get me started, that just pumps them up. And then the, the dance of the sugar plum fairy, all those different scenes, they really enjoy them. I think it's fair to say that uh, these are perhaps young girls, uh, they are cultured suburbanites, maybe some of you, uh, they are art students, or they are my wife and her sister. <laughs> now, there are those that are also a little bit mm, apathetic to the ballet. They go because, well, their sisters in the, play, in the ballet or one of their siblings. Uh, these might be parents or teenage boys who really are, you know, kind of they're there and it's something to do at Christmas season, but they don't really know why. And finally, there, there are those that don't truly appreciate the beauty of the Nutcracker. They don't have a good attitude about it, and they, don't, they didn't know that when they were getting married, they were actually marrying into the Nutcracker. <laughs> That's me. So at Christmas time, we all respond differently to the various traditions, to things like the Nutcracker, either with love and joy, with apathy, or perhaps even disdain. Now, <laughs> I don't believe the Nutcracker is the true message of Christmas. 
I believe that the birth of Jesus Christ is the true message of Christmas, that Christmas is all about who he is. And so the question is, how are you going to respond to the true message of Christmas? Are you going to respond like one of these three ways? Now, we all want to enjoy Christmas. We all want to have a good time during the Christmas season. And so learning to respond to the true meaning of Christmas is an important part of that. So the, the story of the Magi actually teaches us uh, how to respond to Jesus this Christmas season. Now, I'm going to read through the verses as we go along, so you can follow along in your Bibles, and please, if you don't have a Bible, take one of those home, but I'm going to go ahead and read the first two verses as we talk about this concept of responding to Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So the story of the Magi, it truly does teach us how to respond to Jesus at Christmas. These Magi uh, saw something. They saw something in the night sky that pointed them to Jerusalem. And they were willing to make a journey of probably over a thousand miles uh, from like the Persian area uh, to come and look for what that star was pointing towards. Now, the word magi comes from the Greek word magos, which actually means wise men. So the magi are simply wise men. And what they did is they studied the stars. They were uh, astronomers and astrologers. So they really mixed those two areas in a way that we in our modern culture really wouldn't. But they were considered wise men. They, they, they could read the stars and tell the future. And, and there was this belief in that culture that when, when significant things happened in the night sky, significant things were going to happen on earth, especially among like kings. So if there was like a shooting star, perhaps there was a new king coming. And it's interesting that Matthew, so Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew, and he's writing to a Jewish audience, and they would not have uh, really believed or trusted in astrology or astronomy. And so we actually see that there, uh, it's kind of embarrassing to in include this story, a story that we love in our culture, in the original text. So it, it kind of tells us that this text is authentic, that they wouldn't leave it out because it doesn't make them look good to include the story of uh, astrology and the signs. Now, uh, what was the star? Many people over the course of uh, the 2,000 years have wondered what was the star that the, that the wise men saw in the night sky. Now, there are many different theories about this. It could have been uh, a supernova, which is a star exploding. Maybe it was a comet. Uh, so the Chinese actually kept very careful uh, astronomical records um, for, for a long time. And you can actually look in those records and see that at 5 BC, 5 BC, there was a comet that went through the night sky for 70 days, and they, they trailed that comet uh, for that long. Now, that's an interesting theory. 
But you, there could, it could also be a, a planetary conjunction. It was interesting for me to learn about these things because I don't really look into astronomy very often. And that is when uh, two, two planets come together and kind of their overlap creates a brilliance. So it's a, it lights up the night sky in a special way. Now, there's interesting theories. You can, you can use, actually, modern um, computer software that uses Kepler's three laws of planetary motion. Apparently, the, the solar system kind of runs like a giant clock. It's very consistent. And so you can track that giant clock back to around, you know, 0, 1 BC, uh, 1 AD, and kind of see some interesting star patterns. But the interesting thing is that no matter how cool our models are, we don't really know what the Magi saw. And see, although it's interesting to us, it's ultimately not super important. Uh, because what the, what the star, the star was just a sign. And what do signs do? They point to things. And so the sign was pointing to a, a, a specific birth. That was what was important. And so the question is not what they saw, but how they respond to what they saw. I believe there are three examples, three different ways you can respond to Jesus in this story. You can respond like the chief priests and the teachers of the law. You can respond like King Herod, or you can respond like the Magi. Now, I believe that uh, kind of in this story, chief priests are religious people who do not need Jesus. They're religious people who don't think they need Jesus. Verses 3 through 6 say this. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So the chief priests, they're kind of what we might call religious people. People that go to church. People that uh, do things in order to please God. And they don't need Jesus, according to this story. See, when the Magi come, Herod, and we're going to talk more about Herod later, uh, he calls the chief priests. He calls the teachers of the law. Now, the chief priests are, are those that were really in charge of the temple. They, uh, they, did, uh, they kind of orchestrated worship, sacrifices. They had a lot of power, a lot of religious power. Uh, and if I'm to compare them to a modern example, I would actually compare them to pastors. So there you go. Now the teachers of the law, who are they? They're, they're religious experts as well. Uh, but they're more like lawyers. Uh, they, they truly understand uh, the Old Testament, especially Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible that we call the Pentateuch. Uh, and I would compare them to modern-day seminary professors, Right, so we have our pastors and we have our seminary professors. We have all the, like, the religious elite. Uh, and, and boy, they were, they were really elite. And they knew that the Messiah was coming. But it, it's interesting how they respond to Jesus, to, to the coming Messiah. Now, quickly, what does Messiah mean? 
It means anointed one. Anointed one is really a kingly term. Uh, Prophets in the Old Testament would anoint uh, the king. We see this with King David, the most famous king of Israel. And it's as if God was saying, here's my chosen king. Here's my chosen one. So Messiah simply means anointed one. Now notice, King Herod calls the chief priests, he calls the teachers of the law, and they have all the right answers. They can point to the exact Bible verse that tells about the coming Messiah. It's a prophecy, and they know where to find it, but how do they respond? They point to the Bible verse, and then they stay seated. Bethlehem is only about five miles away. Five miles And you would think that if people were riding into the city saying, man, there is a king, Uh, the stars are talking about him, they might go check it out. But see, they were comfortable in their religion. Verse 3 says that when uh, Herod heard the news from the Magi, he got disturbed. He got agitated, kind of like a, a washing machine. He was not pleased, and all of Jerusalem was not pleased with him. And perhaps... Those religious leaders thought that if they were to go and check out this Messiah, well, they would lose some of their comfort, some of their standing, some of their prestige, because their religion had put them into a comfortable place, and they weren't willing to risk their religion for Jesus. See, they had their religion, and they didn't want Jesus to mess it up for them. Now, are you a religious person? Are you a chief priest? Who, who doesn't really want Jesus to, to mess up your religion, your system. Religious people don't think they need Jesus, but they do. You do. Now, a, a couple years ago, maybe some of you are familiar with the Huffington Post, uh, they ran a, an interesting competition. It was called uh, Create Your Own Religion Competition. Uh, And this is what they wrote on their website. You've got the long hair, the nice bushy beard, and lots of beliefs, but don't have the 2.2 billion adherents worldwide. Or perhaps you're chubby and like to sit cross-legged, but no one is making statues of you. Or maybe you're a mediocre sci-fi writer that wants people uh, speaking your pseudoscience. Well, now you can be the next Jesus, the next Buddha, or even the next L. Ron Hubbard. And this actually received quite a bit of attention. There was 906 new religions that were submitted to this competition. Some people have too much time on their hands. (laughs) Some of these religions were friends of the almighty Thumper the Rabbit. They believed that there was a rabbit, a bunny. It sneezed 13.2 billion years ago, and it created the universe. There is the Church of Latte Saints, which believe that life's essence is imprisoned in a fallen god called Decaf. And then there is Elfianity, which is kind of like Christianity, but elves. And it is a religion that believes everyone uh, has to answer to a tiny elf. I think we've actually celebrated that recently. And you have to do what he says or else. Now, religion ultimately is any system that we create in order to feel good about ourselves. It can look like coming into a church building or a religious complex, but it doesn't have to. 
See, it's anything we do that makes us feel good about ourselves, that, that helps us justify our existence before God. That is what religion is. Anything we do in order to say, I'm worthwhile God. Religious people don't need God because, well, they perform. They get their spiritual fix. And I hope, I want to challenge you not to fall into this category. When the end, when the end goal of, of kind of religion is knowledge or performance or, or even character formation and not Jesus, it's just a religion. So we're, we're interested in a person, in a, in a real person. Religion, religious people, they, they don't think they need Jesus. Now, what, what about the next category? These are the King Herods. Maybe you are a King Herod. They are the non-religious people. Oh, good. And they don't like Jesus. They, they don't want him. Verses 7 and 8 say this. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. King Herods are non-religious people who, who don't really like Jesus. Now, Herod, there, were, there are several Herods. If you read the New Testament, there, there's a couple different ones. Uh, and this is, uh, in the New Testament, there's a Herod that put Jesus to death or who was involved in Jesus' trial. But that's not this Herod. This Herod is that man's father. This is called Herod the Great. And Herod the Great uh, lived during the birth of Jesus, and he actually was not, uh, was not born into a kind of kingly status. So he wasn't like a kind of a Prince Harry type figure. He wasn't born, and all the, the newsstands had his his face on it. That's not who King Herod was. He, he proved himself on the battlefield as a, uh, an intelligent, smart uh, military leader. Uh, and yet, even though he was appointed king, he was afraid. He was afraid uh, through all of his life that the real royal family, those that had been born into the king kingship, would come and would overthrow him. And so uh, he did some pretty horrible things. He systematically wiped out the royal family, including his wife, who he had married from that family, and his three sons uh, from her, I believe. And so he was willing to do some pretty scary things. And notice what the Magi say in verse 2. They say, who is the one who is born king of the Jews? And so they say that to Herod whose greatest fear is someone who is born king of the Jews. And it's interesting because the kind of the governor, uh, the, the rulers had actually given Herod the title king of the Jews, king of the Jews. And maybe some of you will uh, know that reference that that is when Jesus is crucified, it's put on a little plaque above his head. Well, King Herod actually wore that title. Now, if that's not threatening enough, it's even more threatening because when the Magi write in, they're, they're writing in from the Parthian Empire. So uh, part of this empire is like the, the Persians, and we have the Medes. And they're writing in, and they are known as something called kingmakers. 
So in like the Persian culture, uh, in order to become king, you had to have all the astrologers, all the astronomers, like this, this royal council of magi, they had to agree that you should be king. Otherwise, you couldn't become king. They had to see it in the stars. Otherwise, you'd disobey God. And so all these kingmakers right in, the, right in the town, there's probably not three of them. There's probably more. Maybe they had a caravan. Maybe they had royal war horses. These kingmakers ride in the town and say, where's the king? The one who's really born king. And Herod does not like this because it's incredibly threatening. See, Herod's non-religion is himself. He believes in himself and his, his own ideas of who he should be and how he should run the kingdom. He doesn't ascribe to Judaism. He doesn't ascribe to anything like that. He ascribes to himself. And so he is a non-religious person that doesn't like Jesus, that doesn't want Jesus. Non-religious people are no better than religious people. They don't like Jesus either. When I was uh, going through seminary, so I went to Gordon-Conwell. It's up in the North Shore. And as I was a student, I, I cleaned fish tanks. It was a, it was a lavish job uh, full of much excitement. And one day, I cleaned a fish tank at a bowling alley in Danvers. And I, I did this every couple of weeks. And when I arrived at this, this bowling alley uh, this day, uh, there was actually a film crew there. And they were prepping uh, the bowling alley for a Lifetime movie. I know there are some of you that love my Lifetime movies. Well, I have seen the behind the scenes. And they were, they were prepping. And as I was cleaning the fish tank, I got to talking to one of the I don't know what his title was, location assistant. Uh, I believe he had helped with like finding the area scouting. Uh, I just thought what he did was very interesting. And so I started talking with him. And eventually he asked, well, well you know, what are you going to school for? And so I got to share, well, I am going to school to become a pastor. And then he shared with me, uh, shared with me something that I won't forget. He said something along these lines. He says, it's really, it's not what you believe in that matters. It's not what you have faith in. It's that you have faith. In other words, it doesn't matter what you believe, just as long as you believe. The end goal is just belief. My friends, Jesus does not believe this message. Jesus preaches in the New Testament a radically different message. He preaches that he is the way, the truth, the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. See, when non-religion comes in contact with Jesus, it doesn't work either. Because he doesn't fit into the mold of religion. He doesn't fit into the, the mold of non-religion. He does tell us that there is a way to God, and it's through him. But it's not a system of works. It's just him. So what's the third option? If, if, if religion doesn't work and non-religion doesn't work, what can we do? Well, this leads us to the third group of people, the Magi people. See, Magi people are gospel people who recognize Jesus as king, and they worship him. Verses 9 through 12 say this, After they had heard the king, they went on their way, 
And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Magi are gospel people. The word gospel, it, it does refer to like the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But it also means something a little bit more specific. The word gospel means good news. And the good news here is really what the Magi are seeking. Now, to understand the Magi even more, and really what would have brought them to uh, Jerusalem looking for the king, we need to understand the uh, kind of the history of the nation of Israel. So in roughly 600 years before the birth of Jesus, uh, the nation of Judah, which is like the southern half of Israel, they were taken into captivity by a foreign nation named Babylon. The Persians eventually took over Babylon. Uh, But before this happened, uh, the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, Uh, called some of those young Jewish men who had been taken into captivity, he called them into his royal palace to serve as uh, as wise men, as astrologers, astronomers, as uh, people that knew sacred uh, writings who could interpret dreams. Now, maybe some of you have heard the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, Well, if you go and you read the book of Daniel, you'll read about that story, but you'll also read a story of Daniel. Uh, He was a a young Jewish man uh, interpreting one of the the, the king's dreams. He had this dream that freaked him out. He didn't know how to interpret it, and so he looked for an interpreter, and Daniel actually could interpret his dreams. It was a very successful time for him. And then what happened after he interpreted those dreams is that the king did something very special. He gave him new status. If you, if you look at Daniel 5.11, you can look at this later, but the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, actually appointed Daniel, the chief of the magicians, uh, the chief of the enchanters, the astrologers, and diviners. Now, this is incredibly interesting because Daniel, uh, Daniel does not ascribe to those things. He describes to Judaism, to the God of uh, the Old Testament, to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he's been put in charge of like a foreign cult. It's like if I was uh, taken uh, to a a cult and and they put me in charge of their, their religion. How do you think Daniel would have used that authority, that power, that position? I believe he would have used that position to teach them the Bible to teach them the Old Testament, to teach them about the true God, the one true God, and that coming Messiah, that coming anointed one, that coming king. See, I believe the Magi, the kind of the, not physical descendants, but maybe the the students, the, the, the distant students of Daniel, I believe they were influenced by him. And that they believed in portions of the Old Testament. And they were looking to the stars, they were looking to the scriptures, and they believed. See, gospel people, good news people, are those that believe in the Messiah, that believe the Messiah has come, that God's anointed one, God's king, has come. 
And these gospel people, well, they also recognize Jesus as that king, and they come and they worship him. Let's look at the example of those magi and what these kingmakers did. They came and they fell before the king. When they found uh, Jesus, it says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were so happy that they had actually found this, this foretold king. And then the scriptures say, they fell down and they worshipped him. King Herod, the chief priest, they wouldn't even come and check out who Jesus is. But the Magi, they they came before a small boy who was probably around two years old, and they fell down at his feet and they worshipped him. And it says that they pulled out their treasure boxes, they opened their treasure boxes, and they presented Jesus with, with royal, kingly offerings. Offerings of gold, of frankincense, and myrrh. Expensive things that only kings really held, really owned. But Jesus is a different type of king, isn't he? See, Jesus didn't actually come to overthrow Herod's earthly kingdom. He went through his life and he lived a lowly life. He lived kind of a despised life. He was a carpenter for most of his years, and then he was a traveling rabbi for his last three years. But through all of that time, he did something no man had ever done before him. He lived without sin. In other words, he never once disobeyed God. And he always did the right thing. That's also so incredibly challenging. He obeyed God. He told people people about how to get to God that you can only get to God through him, the way, the truth, and the life. And then he went to a cross, and he died on that cross. And a man named Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea and a man named Nicodemus, actually took him down from the cross, and they put him in a freshly cut tomb. And you know what Nicodemus wrapped him in? He wrapped him in myrrh. He wrapped him in that royal gift that he had been given even as a child. See, the author of Matthew is pointing to the final destination of that small baby boy. That this small baby boy named Jesus came to die for our sins. Came to become the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. So that if you and I are willing to put our faith in him... He will radically transform our life. He will forgive us of our sin. And you know what the good news is, the gospel news, is not only that Jesus is willing to die for your sins, to transform you from a non-religious person or a religious person into a gospel person. The good news is that Jesus also rose again from the grave. That three days later, Sunday morning, Easter, he rose again from the grave and he proved that he had conquered sin, that he had conquered death. That we, the the good news of Christmas is that we don't need to be afraid of death anymore. And he rose into heaven and he is seated on the ultimate throne, the ultimate kingly throne next to God himself. And he is ruling and he's, he's beckoning us, he's calling us, he's saying, come, come, trust me. Serve me. I am your king, but I am a good king. I am full of so much love. Are you a religious chief priest who doesn't need Jesus? Maybe you're a non-religious Herod who doesn't want Jesus, who doesn't really like his teachings when you find out what the true message of Jesus is. Or are you a gospel magi 
who worships Jesus as king. Worship King Jesus this Christmas season. I want to challenge you. You can be transformed from that old state into a new state. There is hope for all of us. We were all either non-religious or religious people, and one day God came and changed us into gospel people. Just like there is hope for me in the nutcracker, there is hope for you. There are several ways that we can worship King Jesus this Christmas season. I want to talk about three ways that really we find in the text. First, you can seek to find King Jesus. Now, this is especially for those of you that don't know Jesus yet, that have gone through life and don't really believe in Jesus. Kind of your first act of getting to know this king, of ultimately offering your gold, frankincense, and myrrh to Jesus is to begin looking for him, to leave your Jerusalem and go to Bethlehem, to begin to search for him. And if you don't know Jesus yet, I encourage you, uh, read the Gospel of Matthew. Maybe listen to the sermon series as we go through it. Come back uh, to our next service, a week from Saturday, and, and hear about this Jesus. Read the Bible. Seek him. That's an act of worship, I believe, a, an initial first step. Number two is treat Jesus as king. This is a way that we, whether you're a Christian or, or not, this is how you can uh, worship Jesus this Christmas. Show him the honor and respect he deserves, especially on Christmas Day. We're celebrating his birth tomorrow, and I would encourage you to take, take a moment. You heard the Christmas story tonight, Luke chapter 2. Thanks for reading that. And, and take, a, say, take some time tomorrow and just read through the Christmas story. You can open your gifts first. That's fine. Just read the Christmas story afterwards and remember what a gift, what a gift Christ Jesus is. And the final way to worship him is to hold nothing back. Hold nothing back from Jesus. Uh, see, the Magi, they came and they presented to Jesus some very valuable things. And I want to challenge you to present what is most valuable to you to King Jesus. So that, all, that differs for all of us. We, we all have our own different treasure chests that we're hiding our sacred objects in. Uh, for me, often it's time. I don't always like to give my time to Jesus. Uh, maybe it's money. Maybe you don't like giving your money to God. That's why we give tithes and offerings. I would encourage you, give that to Jesus. Maybe it's a relationship or someone in your family who you have a hard time just giving to Jesus. Give that to him this Christmas. Whatever area of your life it is, the king is beckoning you. He's saying, come, come, open that and give it to me. I promise you will not be disappointed with how I treat your most precious treasures. Worship King Jesus this Christmas season. I want to invite the worship team to come on up. I. Uh, we're going to be singing as we close, uh, well, right before the announcements, we're going to sing a song called Silent Night. Uh, we're going to be lighting our candles. You can kind of shuffle around and find that wherever it is. Uh, and I wanted to briefly tell you the history of Silent Night. Uh, in 1816, a young priest, actually about my age, young Catholic priest named Joseph Moore wrote the poem Silent Night. I believe it was German. And two years later, 
uh, his, his organist at his church, Franz Gruber, composed a melody to fit this poem. Now, there are some stories out there that perhaps like church mice ate into the organ, and so they had to kind of, uh, at the last moment, craft a, uh, a song to a guitar because it was originally played on a guitar. But we don't know if any of those things are true. You guys can come back in. All the kids, you can find your parents. We don't know if any of those kind of um, mythological stories about Silent Night are true. But what does matter is what the song points to. Just like the, the, the star of Bethlehem points to the Messiah, it points to Jesus, so Silent Night ultimately points to Jesus. See, it gives us a very important message. It says, Christ the Savior is born. These are the words we're about to sing. Christ the Savior is born. How are you going to respond to that message? Are you going to be a religious person who says, oh, I don't need to be saved because I, don't, I have my religion figured out? Are you going to be a non-religious person that, doesn't, that is kind of offended by this idea that Christ needs to save you? Or are you going to be a gospel person that is completely transformed by Christ the King? Now, the candle itself, I want to invite the two ushers up, Jeremy and Bruce. Bring your candles. The, the candle is a symbol of our kind of gospel transformation, that as, as you believe in Christ, your life is turned from darkness into light. I want you to experience this transformation this Christmas if you've never experienced it before. And once you come to know Jesus, we're to share this message with others. So I encourage you, once you receive the flame, to hold it high. Hold it high in honor of Christ, Christ the King. We want to worship Christ the King this Christmas season. And as I'm going to light it from the Christ candle, I'm going to give it to Jeremy and Bruce. And as you are receiving the candle, make sure that you dip the, well, illustrated here, yep, dip, dip the unlit one into the lit one. All right? And we're going to go ahead and dim the lights.